Paul was a class act. Paul was of the, what you might say, the new breed. He had good feet, he was good in the air, he was strong, so he ticked all the boxes. Uncompromising, and he didn't give anybody an easy, an easy ride, as it were. He was just, he always seemed to be calm and in control, regardless of who we were playing against. I remember the atmosphere was good. It was a, it was a really good night. That was probably my finest memories. Was playing at Rugby Park under the lights. Kilmarnock Football Club has a rich and varied past. In the Killy Histories Big Match series, iconic Killy players share their memories of playing for Scotland's oldest professional club and discuss a game which means a lot to them. You will find out a bit more about the players you know, or you think you know. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to former captain Paul Clark, a veteran of 489 games between 1975 and 1986. We discussed some of Paul's memorable moments, from overhead kick clearances to facing up to some of the game's top strikers. For Paul's classic match, we look back to February 1978, when part-time second-tier Kilmarnock were drawn away to Scottish Cup holders Jockstein Celtic. After the disappointment of failing to see off Celtic at the first attempt, it was back to Rugby Park for a special night of cup football. I'm Gordon Gillen, and this is Paul Clark's Big Match. It was really good. The first match 
See, I've been, you know, I've been thinking back, uh, and it's it's actually quite difficult to remember. We, I've I, I snippets of all the games, and ironically, I, I tend to remember the kind of bad bits. I remember Roddy McDonald, uh, the centre half of Celtic, who I probably was meant to be marking at a corner kick, and it came from a corner kick, and he scored. And I remember, you know, you always feel really disappointed, you know, it was, it was a kind of personal thing, <laughs> you know, if everybody had somebody to mark and somebody, you know, the, the person you were meant to be marking scored, you took it as a, a personal slight, and I'm pretty sure I, I would have been marking him if it wasn't me. I could blame Big Dick, you know, but I won't, I'll, take, I'll take responsibility for it. It was a bit of a, a blow because, like I said, we'd played, we played really well, it should have been more than one goal up at the time, and you know, they, they kind of sneak back into it. It's amazing though, know, you get a draw against Celtic, Celtic Park and you think you should be really happy with that, but actually we were, we were disappointed on the night. But, you know, the, the replay, you can pick yourself up and look forward to the replay, which we, which we did. Kilmarnock's record appearance holder Alan Robertson was a teammate on the night of the famous victory. David Proven had was outstanding really and allowed us to keep pressure on Celtic and which eventually paid off when Derek scored the, uh, the sort of winning goal. I remember Roy Aiken getting sent off uh, and that made a difference because, you know, it's just a psychological thing. You know, all of a sudden, full time all the men, but then again, it's now only 10 men. You've got an advantage now. Uh, Big Derek scored the goal and, you know, we sort of remember hanging on a wee bit. I, I do remember, I think, I think somebody cleared the ball off the line. It may have been Big Derek as well. Somebody cleared off the line for Shogging Eggleston near the end and that was, that was uh, the, the kind of last chance that he got. Final whistle goes and, you know, it's it's great, great feeling. This famous cup victory almost didn't happen. Just about an hour before the kick-off, we get word that we weren't getting a, anything for drawing against Celtic at, at Parkhead, but we were told, no, no, the, the bonus that you were going to get, it was something like £50, pound. although I was talking to Alan Robertson about this, and he actually seemed to remember £70, pound. but whatever it was, we were expecting to get sort of half of that, but we were, we were informed, no, that that was for the ties, you had to actually beat Celtic, it didn't matter whether it was one game or five games, you know, so obviously we weren't very happy about that, and basically there was a few of us there were saying, no, we're not playing. <laughs> 7 o'clock and the game at 7.30 kick-off, and we're saying, no, we're not going out, we're basically going to strike. So there was, there was panic, so I started saying, and I remember Tom Laughlin, the, the chairman at the time, coming into the dressing room, just to back at 7 o'clock, and sort of saying, you know, what's, what's, what's happening here? And we were saying, well, we, we're looking for a, a draw bonus for, for drawing against Celtic. It's not a look for something for it. I think his, his, his back was against the wall because we were trying to get out playing 15, 20 minutes. So he said, OK, so we got, the, we got the draw bonus in the end. But even more so, and, you know, it was, I mean, you always expect to go out and hope to get a win, but you're not, you're not sort of, uh, it's not 100%. Guaranteed, but they also got the, the win bonus as well, which was sweeter. You see, the chairman was maybe panicking a wee bit. Who were the strong characters in there that were persuading him that it was the right thing to do? Well, there was a few. I mean, I think at that time it was probably the players that were thinking they were going to move on. You know, the kind of younger players, but more established players, like the ones I was talking about, Jim Stewart, David Robin, uh, probably myself, Derek McDickin, you know, players that were thinking, you know, that we were sort of moving forward in our careers and probably wouldn't be at Kilmarnock with, you know, sort of, uh, forever. Uh, as it turned out, they were wrong, but <laughs> 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 I can't move through that. 
Do you think that would have been a case of over the tannoy? The players have refused to come out. <laughs> we'll leave that to the history which it didn't happen. <laughs> That's true. What were the fans' expectations, do you think, on the back of that draw? Well, Celtic were never... I mean, I think that was the first time they had ever been beaten in a replay in the Scottish Cup. So, you know, the Celtic fans certainly wouldn't be expecting it. Kamala fans are realistic. You know, they've always been realistic. You know, we're... we're uh, we hope for the best and, you know, sometimes expect the worst. You know, they always look forward to it because it's, I mean, it's a, game, a game of football and at the end of the day it's 11 v 11 and anything can happen, as, as we know. For some reason, Celtic played a, played Joe Philippi, who was a full-back. They played him in midfield and they played a midfielder at left-back. And, uh, and David Proven had was outstanding really and allowed us to keep pressure on Celtic and which eventually paid off against uh, teams like Rangers and Celtic you're always you know you're, you're hanging in there even if you're playing well because you know that uh, they always went right to the end so uh, it was a question of just trying to keep your discipline defend well and and uh, try to capitalise on any chances that we could create you actually enjoy it more over the kind of days to come. You know, it's a kind of nervous enjoyment at the time, but once it's once the results kind of sinks in, I feel like you know, it's, it's a good feeling. A fifth match in 15 days proved too much for part-time Kilmarnock as they faced a difficult away match in the quarter-final. It was unfortunate because <laughs> we more or less went from the Monday night to the Saturday night, so we had to kind of prepare to play against Rangers on Saturday. So we didn't really get time to enjoy it. And we were just... We were actually just exhausted, you know. Even the the psychological uh, playing the game and the kind of emotional, uh, you know, how you feel kind of emotionally during the game. So there's a, you know, there's a, there's a lot, of, lot of pressure on you. And uh, come the Saturday, we just we just didn't turn up, and you know, we get we get back. It was four nothing and a four one. We get beat. Uh, we won the very good that day. <laughs> I can remember the years we played in the Premier League, and we actually stayed up. And actually, the, the first season we played, you know, when Wally Pearson was the manager. We were involved in some great games and you know, we were close, we, 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 got a few, we did get a few drubbings but there was other games that were really, really close but there, there's no doubt that in a kind of one-off game we, were, we could we could compete against anybody but over a season, you know, when you're playing, you're doing it week in, week out and you're, you know, there's, there's folk working, you know, we had guys in the team that, you know, were, were sort of Ian McCulloch who was a, a, a plumber, you know, a heating engineer when he was coming in to, for his work, you know, having started at, you know, seven, seven o'clock in the morning, he's getting to train at the back of six o'clock at night, and he's still in his overalls, and he's salty, and he's been under floorboards, working all day and that. You know, it's, I mean, it, it, it's, it's amazing how we could compete. Presumably, the cup tie bonus would be the best incentive Paul Clark would receive. I, mean, I, I went to come on, I signed an S form, I was, I think, 15, just on 15. You know, so I was in a long time. And one of the one of the, the perks, shall we say, uh, at Commander, because the money was never ever fantastically great, but because the the what Tom Lachlan and his brother, you know, they had a butchers in Commander, uh, so they used to supply a turkey at Christmas time. My mum was delighted. It was always one of the ones where I'm I'm the oldest of seven brothers and sisters, so 
I had always, my mum always told me, get a big turkey. So, <laughs> so uh, first, you know, it became a wee bit of a joke because it, it was just a kind of draw. You know, it was like, oh, there's a turkey, that one's £10, or that one, there's only £8 in that. But a couple of times, you know, I, I was getting one that was only £8, and I'm like, oh, can I no swap for something else? So I was trying to do swaps with people. And I was saying to Hugh Allen, you know, who's kind of distributed them, Hugh, you know, don't get me a bigger turkey. <laughs> I, have to get, I have to get the biggest turkey. <laughs> you know, so I was it was actually, it was, it was quite a memorable thing to, to it was quite a good thing to remember actually, but it was, it was actually, it was, uh, it was decent, you know, the, uh, you know, it kind of took the pressure off uh, what we were getting for dinner from his call-up to the Scotland Under-21 squad in 1977, Paul's performances in early 1978 led to further international recognition, starting in the Scotland B team, which took on a strong Italy B in its final stages of selection for the Argentina World Cup. Earning a creditable 1-1 draw, Ali McLeod singled out the back four for special praise. Paul's handling of one man in particular that night played a key role. Lagomi is up there, shot by Tardelli, and it's been turned in! Paolo Rossi was there again! Unbelievable! He was quick. <laughs> he was lightning fast. <laughs> he was lightning fast and I wasn't. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 think, I think, you know, probably we only played against him the, the, the one game. I don't think he did his best ever game. Uh, it was the Scottish League against the Italian League. Uh, we played in Verona and it was... It was kind of surreal because it was hyped up as a, a, a kind of full international. You know, the Italians said it was hyped up as a full international, and yet we turned up there with basically no full time players. It was all players that were part time for St. Martin and Kamala, Kenya United and Dumbarton, and we were, we were sort of the lambs to the slaughter. But on the night, we actually played really well. Uh, Dougie Sommer, who was at Party Thistle, I think, at the time, scored a goal, and then they, they equalised. But uh, I, I suppose in hindsight, I'm saying Paul Rossi, I, I remember when I, I mean, when I played against him, that was what I did notice about him. He was, he was really, really sharp. He was very, very quick, you know, which isn't always the, the, what you're looking at as a central defender. You know, you're, not, you're not looking to play against uh, really fast players. You know, it's, it's probably better. Uh, playing against the guys that are a bit slower and maybe a bit more physical, but no, he was he was good. But I think I think the, the reason I, I can name him is because he's what a career he went on to have. I spoke with former teammates Alan Robertson and George Maxwell, both Kilmarnock legends in their own right, to get more of an understanding of Paul Clark, the player, the captain, and the Hall of Famer. He and I were paired at the back. Um, he was just a young boy, and we played at Tannadice. George Maxwell spent several of his 11 years at Rugby Park as a teammate of Paul Clark. It was Andy Gray that we were up against. 
he hardly gave him much of the ball at all. Gray was kind of getting back, threatening back into, we'll say that anyway, he was trying back into midfield to try and get a kick of the ball for Paul. How's that for a story? That sounds great. That's that's no, that's no mean feat either. <laughs> How near the truth it is, hey-ho, who cares? <laughs> Not being funny, he did he did play him well. Um, and as I say, Gray, it was obviously when he was in his heyday at Tannadice before he went south. So he was quite a player. But Paul gave was his match that day. It was somebody that really just fitted in right away and you, you never really felt it was that he was flustered or anything. He seemed to be very calm when he was playing. He didn't seem to have any nerves or anything. And he just, uh, you know, he was very uh, solid defensively and uh, could also chip in with a few goals uh, from set pieces. You know, he became an important member of the team very quickly, really. Paul on the park was quite, I suppose, demonstrative, if you like. You know, he could organise things and talk to people and shape the defence, if you like, and make sure everybody, fancy words, was picking up and all that sort of stuff, yeah. But, and he wasn't uh, an extrovert in the dressing room. He wasn't the cheeky, chappy kind of guy in the dressing room. We became sort of solid unit in terms of people who were friendly with each other, the likes of Stuart McLean, Paul, Derek, John Buck, uh, myself, you know, uh, Jimmy Clark, you know, so we became, it was a, a team of people who had a lot of experience of each other and uh, knew what each other were going to do on the pitch. This Kilmarnock team was much more than just a solid unit, taking part in some classic Premier League matches. Probably 1976, and it just shows you're looking at a knockdown team. It was that we beat United 6 1, I think, the previous week, and then we went to play Motherwell at Fair Park, and we get beat 5 4. I think that was the best game I've ever played in. You know, it was just, just felt an absolutely fantastic game, you know, end to end, and goals, and shots, and saves, and that. that that's, a, that's, that's my memories of it. It probably wasn't that good, but I remember talking to a couple of other folks that were at the game, you know, supporters, and saying, oh, what a game that was, and I, and I saw the best goal that I ever uh, did see was, was George Marshall. He scored a goal that day, and George could hit the ball great, I mean, it was a great strike for the ball. Him and uh, Ian Jardin was also another one who could hit a, a shot that you could only dream about, you know. I uh, just hit a ball that day from, I don't know, 20, 25 yards, and it never, it never rose anything other than about six inches off the ground uh, into the net with a, a nice set, but it's an absolutely fantastic goal. No, everybody's just kind of went, wow, <laughs> you know, it was the best, best goal I've ever seen. Uh, and George scored, a, I mean, George scored a, a few good goals, and uh, he jabbed in over the power, power shots, but this was just perfectly strong goal. We then went on to discuss teammates Paul enjoyed watching and those opponents he found it tough facing. I was always, as I said, a half a, a defender. I always liked a good goalie. You know, I did. I, I used to love uh, some of the saves that the goalkeepers that I played with made. You know, I was fortunate. The, the two goalkeepers that I, I mainly played with were Jim Stewart and Alan McCulloch. Both absolutely, I, I thought, fantastic goalkeepers. You know, and uh, you know, you always had this thing that you know, the goalkeepers uh, were were mad. And 
if when you actually seen them kind of week in week out at training, you know, diving about in the mud and the ball hitting off at point blank range at any part of the anatomy, they just got up, they carried on, and you know they were getting you know stumped, and you know people were shooting these. I mean the balls, I grapple the balls that we had, you know, were not the best. You know, they're nothing like the, the kind of balloon type balls that they've got nowadays. You know, when we kicked the ball, if we could kick the ball to just beyond the halfway line, no, it was it was a major feat. But nowadays, they can near enough kick the ball the length of the park. You know, so it's, it's a completely different ball. You know, and these are these are heavy, heavy balls as well. And they were they made some fantastic saves. I mean, they, they were their ability to to stop some of the shots that were that were going. You know, were it was great. You know, so I, I, I would I would I would say the two goalies, a committed defender. Paul Clark didn't get everything his own way. I don't know. I don't think that was a dirty challenge. He was, he was quite a happy player. He was a, a good player. Played the model. Uh, him and Wally Pettigrew were the, 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 the strike force. So they were, they were quite they were quite difficult to play against. But I remember uh, just the kind of midfield. I was in the midfield around about the halfway line with Bobby Graham. And he kind of swung his arm. And it hit me flush in the mouth. And... Uh, the next thing I'm spitting out bits of teeth, so I actually lost three teeth. Went in half time and I had a look, and there was basically there was they were gone. There was <laughs> just there was just a gap there. Uh, you could see the, the stumps. So ironically, I went out after uh, half time, and Bobby Graham's got a wee bandage on his arm. You know, he's like, "You caught my arm, you know." <laughs> Already at 432 competitive matches, it is possible that Paul Clark might even have matched Alan Robertson's 585. A league match against Forfar in 1986 proved pivotal. It was significant, probably personally, just to me, because we were, again, we were trying to get promotion back into the Premier League. Uh, and in the, I, I was 29 year old, and my, my football career was, was sort of drawn to an end. I don't say, I mean, I could have played for another quite a few years, I would, I would imagine, but you know, I knew that I wasn't going to go full time, and it was, it was becoming, it should have becoming more of a hobby, you know. Whereas I'd always, the football has been the most important thing. But as, as time went on, you know, you, you realise, well, I've, I've got a job, I've had a job as a, a branch manager with a scaffolding firm, but I was under a bit of pressure uh, to move, and there were one day, sorry, I wasn't a branch manager, I was a, a, a site manager, so I was working at Hunterson Power Station, but. I was, un- I was getting, coming under a bit of pressure to, to sort of follow my career and maybe move to become a branch manager. But that would involve going down to England, you know, they were talking about maybe a branch in Oxford or something like that. And I had a young family, I didn't want to uproot my, my family to go down there, down to England. So I had a decision to make about what I was going to do. So I thought about joining the police. This was in the kind of January, February time. And I said to my wife, look, if we don't get promotion into Premier League, you know, I'm going to try and join the police. But I was kind of hoping we would get promotion into Premier League because I'd have, I'd have uh, extended my football career, if you like. So the fourth game came up. We were still in there, shout again, promotion. But 
the, the, the kind of more or less blew at that day. I, I don't think after after that game that was us we were, we're not going to get promotion. So we could be one 0 but annoyingly, you know, they, they missed a penalty twice. You know, so the, the, the penalty kick taker didn't want to take the penalty. He he didn't want to take the penalty. So the penalty missed it. Gave it to somebody else. I think actually it was Stuart McLean. And I think Stuart missed it as well. You know, so that was that was uh, that was really really frustrating to me because I had to build up my head that this was a must-win game. I remember actually I, I slapped my head quite early on. I, I, I got myself a, a quite a bad cut in my my head. So you know, it was one of the ones before Terry Butcher. So I was running about with the bandage in my head. You know, with the blood pouring through it. I get stitches. I, I think I get. I'm, I'm pretty sure I get stitches at half time, but maybe not. I may have done it full time, but I remember getting stitches anyway. But I, I remember it was uh, a really disappointing result. And after the game, Eddie Morrison was the manager. He came in and he was so disappointed that he just didn't want to talk to us. He was, he was so disappointed he didn't even want to shout at us, you know. So he just kind of left. And I think we were all sitting there, and I, I, I don't know. I just, I just kind of. I kind of lost the plot a wee bit just because uh, I wanted to see how disappointed I was in the result, you know, so I kind of lost the plot and started, uh, shall we say, falling out of them. No, no falling out, I wasn't falling out of them, but I was trying to tell them a few home truths about how we bottled it, and, you know, it was, it was uh, so disappointing and things like that. So I would say, basically, it wasn't my finest moment, shall we say. Is it fair to say that maybe might not have been in your personality normally? No, no, I definitely was. It was a one-off. You know, cause I, I, I remember actually the, the players were quite kind of shocked. You know, there was. And I think I was a captain at that time as well. You know, and I think the players were, were shocked. You know, uh, how I, I had sort of reacted to it. Because I remember actually, I, I think Sammy McGovern came up to me on the bus after it. You know, and said, oh, "You're only about half here." Well, you know, and I said, "I, I was, I was still, I was still in here." I said, "Oh, Sammy, look, just give me peace. <laughs> give me peace. I'll be better tomorrow." It was obviously going to be a miss for the team because he was still an important player at that time. Uh, I mean, it was it was understandable. We're all part-time players, and uh, Paul wanted to, you know, have a bit more security for for uh, later on. So uh, the police was an option for him, and it was obviously something that he was interested in. So from a selfish point of view, and a football point of view, we're uh, very disappointed and uh, very sorry to see him go, but could understand why he had made the decision. There was a nicer moment a couple of weeks later when you scored a goal against Dumbarton. Aye, well, at that time, uh, things were, things, I, I knew that I was, I was uh, the kind of end, if you like, you know, so I, it was a wee bit more relaxing then. So we, we, played, we played against Dumbarton, uh, Rugby Park. Uh, I think it was, I think it was my, my last goal. It was quite a, an unusual goal for, for, for me to score because it was an overhead kick, a backward overhead. You know, it was uh, Jim Coburn was running down the left wing and trying to cross, and as usual, it wasn't a very good one, hey, hey Colby. <laughs> <laughs> so I was behind me, so I, I did an overhead scissor kick and, and I scored for it, you know, so I remember that. And I also remember that my mum and uh, my dad and uh, my younger brother Michael were standing, it was at the Donald Road end at the corner flag. There wasn't a big crowd, so I knew they were there. So I, I scored in that end, so I remember running over and kind of celebrating with them and things like that. So that was, it was quite nice. It was a, it was a good, good last goal. Oh, that's very nice. 
And uh, it's probably just as well there were witnesses because I asked Alan Robertson and he has absolutely no recollection whatsoever of Paul Clark scoring an overhead goal. I will. I'll get the snippet to him then. I've got a cut out somewhere <laughs> because it says something like, uh, I think he said something like, Paul Clark, despite his bulk, <laughs> managed an overhead kick. <laughs> so if it was bulky then, you should see me now. <laughs> One overhead kick Alan Robertson did verify was the overhead kick that was in the opening credits of sports scene. Yeah, I, I wish, I really, I honestly, if there was one thing I would, I would want to have, I would want to be able to, to show that, particularly to my son Peter, uh, because, you know, he's heard about it ever since. You know, people are always talking about it, and I would love to be able to show him it and say it did actually happen. And it was, it, it was an amazing and. For me to, to sort of think back on it, every time I think back, I think, how did I manage that? I did actually think it was, it was a, quite a, an amazing overhead kick because it was a height. It was a height I managed to get up. I mean, it, was, uh, it was really, really a strange feeling. You know, but it was, it, was, it was also one of the ones where, you know, it, it happened and then everybody went, wow. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Did that really do that? <laughs> you know, I, I, it was good. And it was, uh, it was great because it was on the telly, so you were, you know, folk were always talking about it and things like that, and then uh, never to be seen again. <laughs> Became a myth. No, I remember, I certainly remember the one off the line at, at uh, Fur Hill. That was certainly, uh, that fetched in the memory. I, I did try to get it. Now, I spoke to Gordon Smith, and Gordon Smith worked in the BBC at the time, and he said that basically, they get thrown out. There was a whole load of, there was a fire or something like that in the BBC in one of the corridors. And what they did was they just threw out all the stuff that either got damaged or burnt or whatever and all that sort of year I just get chucked in your skip. So so uh, I, I think I think it's probably has gone. Well maybe someone who's listening to this will maybe have a copy. You never know. Yeah, maybe uh, yeah. Well, we'll need a good VHS uh, recorder. <laughs> need a mic or something. They like to occasionally run up the pitch uh, where he uh, left players in his wake, um, but I'm not sure how often that actually resulted in a goal, uh, but there, there, there were one or two certainly that came in the back of that. After a few years away, Paul was persuaded to return to Kilmarnock. I went to, to Arne, I worked in Arne from 1990 to 1995, and then I came back from Arne and I get posted to so just about that time, Alan Robertson, who had taken the, was, was in charge of the youth team, uh, Stuart McLean was, was helping him, and the two of them were running the Kilmarnock under-18s. had previously been Jimmy Clark, I think Jimmy Clark had been involved, but Jimmy had moved up, so it was Alan and, and Stuart. But they were going to start an under-16 team, this was just for the youth setup, which was just kind of getting up and running. So they'd asked me... If, no, would I be interested in, in giving them a hand? So I said, yeah. So myself and Jack McGilvery, who was a, a player who played with Kilmarnock uh, back in the 1976, I think, Jack was there. He came from St. Mern, a lifelinger. So, so Jack and I took the under-16 team. Uh, we took it for seven years. And while we were doing that, you know, they'd been down to under-15s and then I think under-14s, under-13s. So, you know, the... the the, the team set up so I was growing arms and legs you know so it was, it was actually it was really good I, I enjoyed it but it was actually quite time consuming and I was I was uh, you know working kind of sometimes I was working shifts sometimes I was day shifts so you know trying to trying to get 
get it tied in with my shifts and get time off and things like that. Could be difficult at some point, but I usually usually the police were quite good about that. Uh, quite involved as well, you know. You would do training maybe a Monday night and a Thursday night. Sometimes you had to go up to Castle Milton on a Wednesday night, and also it'd be a Sunday. You could be playing from anywhere, you know. Usually junior grounds, Salkets, uh, you know, up to you know sometimes we were travelling up to Dingwall and Inverness on a Sunday, so it was, it was time consuming. Mm-hmm. But it was actually very rewarding. You know, I did, I did enjoy it. What, what good players come through? We a kind of purple, purple patch. You know, you know, if you actually look at the, the players that they all came through around about that time, you know, you like you said, Chris Boyd, Peter Canero, uh, James Fowler, Gary Hay, Paul DiGiacomo, Stephen Naismith. I mean, there's a whole lot you, you could go on. You, you also Gary McDonald, Graham Smith, Samson, you know, the, Jamie Hamill, Stevie Murray. There was a whole load of players that actually were good enough to play and the first team, and you know, actually went on and had good careers. The reserves uh, used to play on a Thursday night quite often, so we would do the training, the first team would do the training first, and then we would, you know, sort of go and get ready and go away, and the reserves would, would, would play in our game. And it was, it was kind of kind of strange, but the, player, the, the guys that used to stay after and watch the games on a, on a consistent basis were, were Jimmy Clark, myself, Alan Robertson and Stuart McLean. So, so it's quite it's quite strange that you actually ended up as as a four four of the coaches, you know. So it just it just shows you must have a wee bit of coaching in us even even when we're playing. I think if you've got a, a good football player, then you know they can they can coach themselves. My my theory with my idea in coaching is always just like if if you're, if you're a good football player, then you know you you can coach yourself a lot. You know you can do a lot yourself you know that's that's why when we're doing the coaching I, I always like to just watch the guys the boys playing and then you know a two-touch game or a three-touch game or just playing their ball uh, it's was, it was always a, a, player, a football player's a football player to me you know you, you can tell uh, somebody's a football player they'll, they'll, they'll shine through who, would, who was the player that the second you saw them if you can name one player amongst all those really good players that you talked about is there one you thought straight away yep them. Well, I'm going to say Chris Boyd, and it's not because I think he was, he was the best player, but he was always a great goal scorer. You know, always a great goal scorer. And it, it was, no, I mean, it, Chris actually turned out to be a really good player. See, seeing you end his career, I thought, I thought Chris was a, a smashing, experienced, professional, very, very good player. But he was younger. He wasn't that uh, energetic or enthusiastic, obviously, all the time. I didn't show it that much. But what he could do was he could score goals. Derby matches are always special. None more so than the Clark Brothers derby. There was actually more than one derby, but I, I prefer just to talk about the one. It was, it was a rugby park and we, we ended up... Was Stephen was just kind of in the team here. And he, you know, obviously, he's seven years younger than me, so... So I was, I'd been quite established in the team we played, he was in the Sidburn team, it was a two-east draw, but no, I, I thankfully to this day, I, was, I, I thank my blessings, I, I scored the two goals, you know, it's always something, it's always, it's one of the few things I can throw, throw to him about, you know, <laughs> uh, he didn't score that many goals, so I, I scored two goals that day, uh, and we got a two-east draw, so it was good, I mean, my dad and I was not the stand, so it was good to and Michael. Uh, so it was quite good to uh, a family, family occasion. Either of them overhead kicks? No, but I, I, one of them was actually 
actually quite a good volley <laughs> for the eighteen yard box. I remember the second goal was a good goal. But what, what I remember is talked to one of the mates was out with Stephen just for a, a social night and he said I can you can always remember uh, he was uh, he, he said he, he might have been marking me, I should have been marking or something. <laughs> and he, I remember the ball just failed you just at the six yard line, you're standing in your cell with the middle of the goals and then she said, Oh you know, it's the tough Paul's involvement in the club has taken a new form, with a leading role in the former Players Association. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, Ruth Cumming asked me if I'd like to get involved. The club, the club have been talking about it for quite a few years, and I was quite happy to get involved. Always at the time, Stephen, my brother, was, was the manager, so I was probably more involved in the club. I was, I was around about it quite a lot, so I was, I was quite happy to help. You know, it's, it's been good actually. I've, I've really enjoyed it because I've, I've got in touch with a lot of guys that I haven't spoke to in you know, decades. It's proved to be pretty popular. Uh, I think the club are really happy with the way it's, it's going, and we're trying to just get ideas to kind of keep it keep it ticking over and, and taking it forward. My sincere thanks to Paul Clark for taking the time to share some of his Kilmarnock memories with me as well as for his support in the development of this series. This episode was recorded by telephone in April 2020. The Big Match series is only possible as a result of some wonderful contributions. My thanks to Kilmarnock legends Alan Robertson and George Maxwell for sharing their stories of Paul Clark the teammate. To legendary BBC commentator David Begg, I owe a debt of gratitude for his evocative match report of the Scottish Cup fourth round replay of 1978. Kilmarnock FC historian John Livingston has kindly provided a statistical background to Paul's career. The theme music, Clear Progress by scottholmesmusic.com, is the ideal soundtrack. It is used under free Creative Commons licence. See you next time. Maybe it's just because he kind of looked like him as a young skilf, but, um, you know, does he remind me of Hanson at Liverpool? Probably. Um, it was the same kind of thing, he could play out from the back, it wasn't just a big thump up the pitch, it was, you know, he wanted to play football, um, and that was his kind of strength, um, so, yeah, he was, he, was a, he was a great player. He replaced Brian Rodman, who had been a, quite a big player for Kilmarnock, but Paul came in, he was uh, pretty young at that stage, but he was somebody that really just fitted in right away. He came in and established himself. And as I said to you, he came in, I think his first game was just maybe the season before, but then he came in in November and they played, and that was him, he played steady for him a long, long number of seasons after that. So he would be, as the manager would say, he'd be, his name would be in the sheet almost first every week. That's a tribute in itself, in my opinion. I'm, I'm going to be phoning him to say that I expect my check in the post. <laughs>